Uh, we're meeting today at 1, and we're having a potluck, for starters. And then we'll have a Bible study at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. That's the next three days in a row at 7 o'clock. Then the weekly Sabbath comes. We'll meet at our regular time of 1 o'clock, and we have a potluck, uh, prime rib roast provided. I know you have a schedule in front of you, most of you, but uh, I'm reading this mostly for those who are tuning in by phone so that they can, uh, they can tune in and listen to the Bible studies and know when the Sabbath service are. <clears throat> Forget about the prime rib roast if you're out there on the telephone line, though. We'll just take care of that ourselves. Anyway, uh, then Sunday we'll have a Bible study at 7 and then the seventh day, of course, is Monday, and we'll have a 1 o'clock p.m. service with a potluck then. So, that's the schedule. Last night, as we were reading through uh, John 13 through 17, there are several things that came to mind there that... Uh, that are actually doctrinal, and I don't stop and comment on that kind of thing when we're going through the Passover, just reading the words of the Bible and letting them sink in. But there's a lot in there that uh, can be overlooked very easily because Christ gave an awful lot of instruction in those chapters. I'm not going to go back necessarily and review that today, but uh, one thing that came to mind that I thought I would mention is that we always have been taught and believe that when Christ returns, the first resurrection, uh, we'll rise to meet Him in the air and then come down with Him to rule on the earth. That's what we've been taught all those decades. And yet, Christ explained that uh, you can't come with me now, but you can come with me later. So, he was going to his Father's throne in heaven, and he says, you can't come now, but you can come later. We have since come to understand from the book of Revelation and some of Paul's writings in various places that he is going to come, his saints will rise to meet him in the air, and they will go with him at that time. And Peter and James and John and all those guys will be with him. Uh, and so will we. He'll rise, we'll rise to meet him in the air, go back to his father's throne, be married on the sea of glass, as the book of Revelation very clearly says, and then have a year's honeymoon while the seven last plagues occur here. So, we are going to heaven. We're just not going to stay there. We'll be there for about a year. He'll probably cut that time short lest no flesh be saved alive, but we're going to heaven, to the seat of God's throne. And then he does say in there as well that the Father and the Son will dwell with us. And we came to understand later on, it was all explained carefully in the, uh, the nine-part series of How Exclusive is the Church?, that uh, the Father and the Son are going to come down at the beginning of the millennium, and they'll be the temple in Jerusalem at that time. So, 
Christ will rule the earth, but the Father will be here with him. And it isn't after the second resurrection, because it clearly says that there are evil people still around, and they will not be allowed in the city. So after the second resurrection, and after those people have their chance in the great white throne judgment, the wicked will be burned up, they won't be wicked around to even come into Jerusalem. So that's speaking of a millennial time. So there's, there's a lot of doctrine in there in those chapters. There's a lot of instruction about our attitudes and about loving one another. And that's how everyone will know that we are the disciples of Christ. Not if we have the right doctrine on the millennium. Not if we have the right doctrine on uh, clean and unclean meats. Not if we have the right doctrine on you name it. But do we love one another? That's the key. That's the understanding that we need to get the most out of that. If you love me, keep my commandments. These are the commandments of love. If you love me and you love my Father, love each other. I mean, he goes over it over and over and over again because love is the greatest thing. Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 13. You can have all prophecy, you can have all doctrine, you can have all mysteries, but if you don't have love, you got nothing. Because faith will be fulfilled. All these things will happen. Hope will be fulfilled. We will be part of the kingdom of God. won't need faith and hope anymore. But we will need love throughout all eternity so that there is eternal peace. There is eternal happiness and security and love. And not fighting and war. So if you get anything out of what we read last night, get that Christ loved us enough that he died for us and that we are to love one another in the same fashion in which he loved us and then we can enter into love with the Father and the Son the same way. That is a thumbnail sketch of John 13 through 17 that we read and is the most important thing to get out of it. Now today... Uh, we're going to continue where we left off last night. Traditionally, we've always stopped at the end of John 17. I nearly did it 16 last night, just to, wasn't paying attention, I guess. Uh, but we went ahead and did 17. However, those have to do with Christ's instruction to us uh, and to his disciples those that were there then and those that follow after, he said. But we did not get into what he went through that night and next day. And we generally don't at Passover time, so I want to do that today. Let's understand a little bit that God works in patterns, and yet there are differences in the way things are done. Uh, consider the very first Passover, for instance. They had the Passover, and it was instituted that night. They put the blood on the doorposts. Uh, they had been told that they were going to be leaving, so have their sandals on, have their staff in hand, and be ready to leave. But the Passover service occurred, and 
nothing really happened other than they ate the lamb and did the Passover. But at midnight, uh, a cry went out because Christ passed through the Egyptians and killed all the firstborn. So, at the first Passover, all the firstborn of Egypt, or Mitzrayim, died. The people, cattle, everything, all died. And was there ever a stir and a scream and a roar uh, that came out of all those people when they realized what had happened? And Pharaoh told them, get out of here immediately. Go. Uh, He had gone through all those plagues and hadn't told them, go away. He would have his heart hardened and he would go through another plague. And nothing would happen. So here, when they killed all the firstborn, uh, Pharaoh had had it. All right, get out of here and get out now, lest we all die. So at that first Passover, there was an awful lot of death that occurred. And then they were delivered. They were set free. They marched seven days. And then all their enemies were killed, drowned in the Red Sea. And once they had crossed that Red Sea, they were truly delivered. They were delivered from Mitzrayim on Passover night. They were delivered from the last vestiges of danger from it on the seventh day, when Pharaoh and his armies were drowned, and they were in the wilderness alone with God. Now, what they did with their freedom is uh, another story. Uh, we, don't, we won't go there today. But I wanted to do a parallel here a little bit of what occurred at that very first Passover and compare it with what we know of Christ himself when he died as our Passover. A little bit different circumstance, but the same result. Uh, they had the Passover. Christ gave it uh, it to them. Then he gave them instruction. Judas betrayed him. And when midnight came, uh, nobody died, like it happened with the firstborn in Mitzrayim. But they came and got him and began to torture him, which would lead up to his death the following afternoon after he had gone through the most horrible torture that any man has ever gone through. Now, he died the following afternoon, and what did that do? That gave us deliverance. So the circumstances were different. Firstborn didn't all die. Now, that was the firstborn of the enemy that died back in that first Passover, And here, the following afternoon, we had the firstborn of God die. The firstborn of Egypt, or sin, died that Israel might have physical deliverance. Now, in Christ's case, the firstborn Son of God died that we might have spiritual deliverance and be offered eternal life. So it was done a little differently. Uh, Opposite sides died, 
But it was so we could live, was the reason that it was done that way. So it's deliverance for us, even though this time the other side died. So how will it all come to pass here at the end when God intervenes and does some things to deliver the church and to bring the gathering? Uh, we shall see exactly what pattern that follows, but deliverance is still the key issue. That we be delivered from this world, that we be delivered to God, and to find grace in the wilderness. So, a little different pattern, I'm sure, but still the same story. The deliverance of God, of His people. So let's, with that background, pick it up in chapter 18 of John. Let's go back in the last two verses where Christ was praying to his Father of chapter 17. He says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love wherein you have loved me may I be, may be in them, and I in them. Now let's fast forward to the end again. After Christ was here on this earth, 33 and a half years, the world still did not know Him, and it did not know the Father. So, in one sense, what He did here was a futility, was it not? People weren't converted. Just the disciples, and they weren't converted until the Holy Spirit came in, in Pentecost, or on Pentecost. Now, it wasn't futile at all in the sense of what he accomplished, and that is that he began a New Testament church with a people infused with his Spirit. And you fast forward then, after that about 70 years, of knowledge of Christ being disseminated, and then it went underground and wasn't heard of again basically until 1926 and 27 and thereafter in this last hundred years. We're in the same position that Noah was in at the very end of a very violent, sinful world. And it took 100 years for Noah to build the ark, and for the few that God was going to deliver, to then be delivered. And from 1926 and 27, here at the end, God has allotted, again, a hundred years for His people to be delivered. And guess what? For them to know that He is God. He just said right here, at the end of his instruction to these disciples, the world has not known you, but I have, and these have known that you have sent me. Just those few. The rest of the world didn't get it. Now, the difference in the pattern here at the end is that Christ is going to, after he gathers the church and sets it up as a light to the world, he is going to send witnesses out to show the world 
that he is God. Now, it took a while for Pharaoh to get the point. A lot of plagues. And then he finally says, oh, go and pray for me, I think is what he said. (laughs) He's acknowledging there is a God, but he's not about to follow him. And the same will transpire again here at the end. All through Ezekiel it says, and they shall know that I am the eternal, over and over and over and over again. It says it in Isaiah, it says it in Jeremiah, it says it all through the prophecies. And Revelation 11 tells us that they'll have the same plagues available as were pronounced on Pharaoh and on Mitzrayim. And they can unleash those plagues anywhere they wish, all over the world, as they go around the world to preach the gospel of the kingdom and that God is God. So Christ concluded his ministry here saying, they haven't known the Father. But when this end time one gets done, they will know who the Father is. They will still not follow him. They will reject him. And they will kill the two who told them about him. But they'll know. And most of them are going to die then in the seven last plagues. And when they come up in the second resurrection, they're going to say, Oh, we learned about you back just as we were dying. (laughs) And they'll be a little more ready to listen. But they will have known who God is. So when Christ concluded his ministry... They still didn't know. And when the apostles concluded their ministry, not very many knew. The gospel had not been preached around the world as a witness, for the end did not come as James, John, and Peter thought it would. They died instead. But here at the end, we know from Matthew 24 and Luke 21, that as soon as the gospel is preached around the world, and the two that have preached it are killed in the streets of Jerusalem, that the end will come. That we know. So they will learn who the Father is. It will not be a happy knowledge, but it will happen. So then let's pick it up in chapter 18, and take this personal, as the opening prayer did, what Christ did for us. Because he's talked about love and our attitudes up until chapter 18. Then, from there down, he shows what real love is. I'm going to call him Jesus through here because he has not yet become God with us, Emmanuel in that sense. We say it in hope projecting to a time very shortly when he will be with us and dwell with us. And yet he was not that at this time. He was with the disciples. So I suppose they could have called him Emmanuel, but I think when that was said in Matthew, that you will call him Jesus, they will call him Emmanuel. Uh, If you go back to the Old Testament, that is an end time thing. Uh, Isaiah 7, 8, 9, talk about Emmanuel in the context of the day of the Lord, when he comes to dwell 
with his church. So he had not done that at this point. He was going to leave his church and go to his Father in heaven. At the end, it's different. He's going to come from heaven to his church and instruct us in righteousness and purify us so that we can be truly righteous. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted there with his disciples, went out in the garden where they could have privacy, he could talk to them, he could be with them. They slept outside at night a lot of times, and then there were times when he took off from them up into the mountains alone in order to have solitude and to talk to God and to be sure that he kept himself sinless. But anyway, Judas knew this place. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? So he didn't wait even for them to come to him. He heard them coming, saw their torches as they neared, and he went out to meet them. (coughs) He knew everything that was going to happen, how it had to happen. So he says, let's face it front on. Went to them and said, who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Now the he there in the King James is in parenthesis, meaning it's not in the Greek. I am is a name for God. Not I am he, but I am. (coughs) So he announced, I'm God. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And soon then, as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Well, they were under the influence of Satan, and they confronted Christ, who was God. But in the Bible, when people encounter Satan, they fall over backward. When they encounter God, they fall on their face. Well, even though these faced Christ, they were under the influence of Satan, and therefore they fell over backward. They were not ready to accept who Christ was. They were not ready to bow down before him and fall on their faces in worship, as Moses did and others did when God appeared. These were under the influence of Satan. They were there to do Satan's work. And when he said, I am God, that blew them over backward. Then asked he them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Speaking of his disciples, if it's me you're after, 
let my disciples go. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of them which you gave me have I lost none. He had said that back in, we read it last night, except Judas, uh, who had betrayed him. So they were all still there, and he intended to keep that scripture intact, that prophecy intact. It wasn't going to go by the boards by them taking and killing the disciples at that time. They'd do that later. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and tried to cut off the high priest's head, or the high priest's servant's head. Well, it doesn't say that, but I'm sure he didn't aim at his ear. He smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Marcus, or Malchus. Peter had a zeal for God. It wasn't always under control. Sometimes it was a little bit uncontrolled zeal. But this needed to be done in any case. So he thought, if they're coming after Christ, then uh, I'll take care of them. So he swung his sword, trying to do just that. The man may have ducked a bit, and it just got his ear. Then said Jesus to Peter, Put up your sword into the sheath. The cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? In other words, Peter, we're not going to fight. I'm going to surrender. I already came out and told them, take me, don't take them. So uh, play nice now. Quit trying to kill them. Uh, this thing has to happen. I'm going to drink of what has set, been set before me. He had made up his mind before the foundation of the world, when he and the Father first talked about it, that he would have to come and die for sinful man. Before they ever even created Adam and Eve, they knew what would happen when Satan got hold of human beings. And it's happened ever since to every human being that has ever been born. So they knew he would have to come and do this. And he had steeled himself to it uh, all that time. And when he came to this earth, he knew what would be the end of the story. So he was prepared. I'm sure he had talked to the Father an awful lot about it over the last days and weeks before it was coming because he knew when it would happen at Passover time. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. He'd, he'd volunteered. He'd turned himself to them, but they tied him up anyway. I guess they were afraid he was, after presenting himself, he was going to try to run away. And after, there's another account, says that Christ put the high priest servant's ear back on. He picked it up and stuck it back on him. So he wasn't going anywhere. But they were afraid he would. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. 
And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest, and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. So they released every year one criminal uh, to die for the people. It was a Jewish custom, not in the scripture, but it was a Jewish thing. But you'll find that the Jews never did follow much of what's in Scripture. <laughs> and they still don't. But Peter stood at the door without. One, one went in, and Steve, Peter stood without. I suspect that the one that went in was John. Then went out that other disciple, which was known to the high priest, and spoke uh, unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. That's interesting. They had a lady minding the door into the uh, the palace, the temple. Then says the damsel that kept the door to Peter, Are you not also one of this man's disciples? And Peter said, Oh, yes, I love him very much, and I've been following him now for three and a half years, and he is the Son of God. Peter just let him have it. It's who this man was. <laughs> and you know the story better than that. I am not. <laughs> I don't know this guy. What are you doing here by the door? <laughs> you know, you don't know him. What are you doing here? I think it was pretty obvious, but he sure denied it, didn't he? And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals. For it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now that was right up here in southern Utah, where it can still be kind of cold in April. Not down in the desert of the Middle East. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Well, who are you? Who are you? Who follows you? And what do you believe? Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, where the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. I've already told everybody what I believe. I've already told them a doctrine. Uh, why do you ask me that? It's been a public thing. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answer you the high priest so? Well, you're not being respectful enough here. You should be kowtowing and polishing his boots, straighten up, get a right attitude. And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. What have I said that was wrong? What was bad? But if well... Why do you smite me? Now Annas had sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They therefore said to him, Are not you also one of his disciples? He denied it again and said, I am not. Now hadn't Christ told him, we read it last night, that you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. All right, that's two down. 
For all his boldness and zeal, Peter was a bit of a coward too. Now, he didn't stay that way. Once he received the Holy Spirit in Acts, he became very bold, very powerful. So you see the difference between the man here who was facing the Romans and was afraid and he who later on had a great deal of backbone and power that God gave him as a result of the Holy Spirit. So what we are apart from God's Spirit is not much. What we are with it can be quite potent. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, said, I think I saw you in the garden with him. I, I was there, and I saw the ear fall, and I saw it put back on, and uh seems to me I remember you might have been the one with the sword. He's sitting there thinking about this. And Peter's denying it. And then Peter said, I am not again. Denied it the third time. And immediately the rooster crowed. I'll bet that got Peter's attention. He had just denied it. And I bet he was feeling a little bit ashamed. Here was Christ whom he had been with for three and a half years. And he was a lead disciple and had been told he'd be the physical head of the church. And yet here he had, out of fear, denied him three times. So I bet he was feeling a little bit anguished and ashamed at that point anyhow. And when he heard that rooster crow, he remembered what had been said to him a little bit earlier in, the, in Christ's instruction. And I'll bet he felt really, really bad at that point. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment. And it was early. Yeah, the rooster had crowed. It was still early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might see eat the Passover. So the Jews didn't go in. Now, the Passover had been that night. But the Jews, many of them then, and still today, do not keep the 14th, as we're told in Exodus. They keep the 15th. So, the Passover had already come and gone. But the Jews were still looking forward to it that night, the 15th. And in fact, in different places, it's called the Jews' Passover. Not God's Passover. Passover of the Jews. So, they didn't want to be defiled before they took the Passover on the 15th. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? You know, what you get me out of bed for? What kind of an accusation have you got on him? They answered and said to him, If he were not a criminal, we would not have delivered him to you. They were lying. Lying witnesses. Accusers with no evidence whatever that he had ever been any kind of a criminal. Didn't he say, he answered, not. He kept still there in some, I mean, Isaiah 53, we read last night in the same in Peter. 
Then said Pilate to them, Take him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. <laughs> That's a conundrum for you. Pilate says, We're not going to judge him by Roman law. You're the ones that think he's a criminal. Go judge him by your law. And then it immediately went through their mind, We want to kill this guy. But according to our law, we don't have anything that we can put him to death for. Well, that put them in a, a real bind. There's nothing he's done that carries a death penalty. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what death he should die. Common criminal is the death that he would die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He's trying to get this thing all figured out. And Jesus answered him, saying, Sayest thou this thing of yourself, or did others tell it you of me? Where, where did you even get this idea? Did somebody plant it on you? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? They brought you here as a criminal. I'm not a Jew. What did you do? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. So he asked him the question, Are you the king of the Jews? And he's really saying, No. I'm not the king of the Jews. My kingdom is not of this world. It's from the Father in heaven where I'm about to go. So I'm not the king of the Jews. Well, that must have been perplexing to Pilate as well. The Jews say you're the... They're accusing you of saying you're the king of the Jews, and yet you're telling me you're not. Your kingdom's not of this world. And the Jews were certainly in that world. And if my kingdom were of this world, I'd have told Peter, get your sword out and get it busy. <laughs> kill them all. Don't just take a swing at one, but kill them all. No, that's not what he'd said. I'm not going to fight this. This isn't my kingdom down here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Well, maybe you're not king of the Jews. Or are you a king of any kind? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. He avoided it. Uh, we get after our politicians when they avoid a question, but there were times Christ avoided a question too in righteousness and sincerity. You say I'm a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. So he said, yeah, you say I'm a king. Well, that's what I was born for, but I'm not the king of the Jews. But I'm here to tell the truth. And if you believe the truth, you'll hear me. Pilate said to him, what is truth? We're going to get into philosophy here. 
And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find in him no fault at all. He's not claiming to be your king. He said he might have been born to be a king, but that's not a sin. And uh, he said he came to tell the truth. And who can say what truth is? Pilate even asked the question, what is truth? John seventeen seventeen, which we read last night, says, Thy word is truth. So, what, what am I going to try this guy for? But you have a custom that I should release to you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release to you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. They didn't want Christ released because they had nothing that they could kill him for, as stated above. So they wanted someone else to do that, and they wanted him to be judged by the Romans. And they'll push it. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. So they're mocking him as a false king. Pilate therefore went forth again and said to them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. I turned him back over to you. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate says to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests thereof and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Well, of course. They had him dressed up like the king of the Jews. So, the Pharisees wanted him killed, the Jews. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. In other words, he's committed idolatry. So they finally found something that they thought they could kill him for. Breaking the first commandment. <clears throat> when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. He's getting in deeper here, and he doesn't see any sin or any fault in Christ, but the Jews kept pushing it. So he was getting uneasy. He didn't want to do something wrong. He didn't want to judge a man erroneously. He didn't want to have him put to death uh, for something he hadn't done. But the Jews were intent on killing him. So it kind of made Pilate uneasy and afraid. And went again into the judgment hall and said to Jesus, Whence art you? But he gave him no answer. Where are you from? What are you doing? Then said Pilate to him, Speak you not to me? You're not going to answer me? Know you not that I have power to crucify you and have power to release you? You're going to ignore me and I, can, I have life and death in my hands. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me, except it were given you from above. 
Therefore, he that delivered me to you has the greater sin. So he's referring to his father and says, he could save me out of this. But the sinners are the ones that are trying to kill me. And it would be murder. Wouldn't be righteous. I haven't done anything to die for. Be murder. And from there, thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. I'm just going to turn him loose. I'm not going to kill him. I'll turn him loose. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Well, you better be a friend of Caesar <laughs> if you're a Roman. And they were, going, they were trying to put him down for not being Caesar's friend. What did Caesar have to do with this? Nothing. The Jews had been the ones who accused. Caesar hadn't said a word. He's in Rome. You're not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. There's their line of reasoning. Caesar's the only king. He's the king of kings. Caesar's the lord of lords. And if anybody else tries to be a king, then he is setting himself against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that, saying... He brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, uh, Gabbatha. Or, I can hardly read that. I've got a line through it. Uh, Galbatha, I guess it is. Doesn't matter. And it was the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour, about noon. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. He says, You want a king? Here he is. Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? (laughs) If he's your king, and you came saying he's claiming to be your king, you want me to kill your king? Is that what you're asking? What if the Romans had come and said, kill Caesar? Tantamount to the same thing. They cried out, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. (laughs) These lying rascals. We have no king but Caesar. While they're accusing him of trying to be king. So they're actually telling Pilate, you're against Caesar, but we love him. He's our only king. They didn't either. They hated Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Everything about this was illegal. The accusations were illegal. Uh, The claims of being king were illegal. Illegal, and even said, nope, my kingdom's not of this world. So there was nothing righteous or good about it. And they took him and led him away. Did he argue or fight or try to kill him? Nope. Didn't call on a legion of angels to destroy them. And he, bearing his stake, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. 
where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst, in the middle. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He did not want to, at that point, be associated with it at all. So he says, this is the one that's the king of the Jews. Doesn't have anything to do with Caesar or the Romans. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, so everybody could understand Pilate, standing off and saying, this is a Jewish thing. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. No, he didn't. He said, I'm not. You're the ones that are accusing me of saying that, but I never said it. See what lying witnesses can do? Lying rumors? Wild imaginations. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Just shut up, boys. This thing's established and I'm hands off. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout, one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let's not tear it up, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So, on top of lying and accusing, now the soldiers are stealing his garments, dividing them up. Now there stood by the stake of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of uh, Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene, three women. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, that would be John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He takes her attention from him, and says, I'm dying, John will be your son now. He will take care of you. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. So he told him, I'm putting you two together since I'm not going to be there. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home, brought her in, took care of her. She was getting up in age by then, somewhat. She'd been pretty young, probably, when Christ was born. But this was 33 and a half years later, and people get a little older, if you hadn't noticed. So uh, he took her in to take care of her. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, he had been beaten and broken, all night long, all morning and afternoon, we read in Isaiah 53, 
and in Psalm 22 and 23, and in other places, how he could tell all his bones. They'd strip the flesh off to the point he could see his own bones. And he had lost a lot of blood and plasma, and he was thirsty. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar. That's what you want when you're thirsty. And they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and died. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, they were keeping the 15th again. He had already died on the 14th. So this was the 15th. They were going to keep the Passover on the wrong day. Just like most of the Church of God are probably keeping it tonight according to the Hebrew calendar. And it's the wrong day. They're not keeping it on the correct day. Uh, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Uh, if they weren't dead, if you broke their legs, uh, that finished hanging them and killed them. Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first and the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. Now, he was a strong young man. Why did he die quicker than they did? Well, they hadn't been put through the tortures that he had gone through from midnight until afternoon. Crown of thorns? How would that feel on top of your head? Jam thorns down on top of your head. Strip your flesh off. Beat you. Cudgel you. Uh, whack you until your bones could be seen through your skin. Well, pretty obvious why he would die a little bit ahead. But when they came to him, they both didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. To be sure, his blood came out and dripped at the bottom of the stake. God made sure that happened because it was his blood that saves us from sin. If he had retained his blood, then how could it be poured out for us? So that was part of what had to be done. Soldier didn't know that, but his blood had to come out. And he that saw it bore record, and his record is true. And he knows that he says true that he might, that you might believe. Well, John's the one writing this epistle, and he's the one that said that. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. That's from Exodus 12. And another scripture said, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. He came, therefore, and took the body. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight, a lot of herbs. 
Then took they the body, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. So, they wrapped him up with all these herbs. How did he get out of that? Remember all the stories about Houdini and all the things that he went through and could get out of? And here he was dead, and they wrapped him all up. Sometimes it's hard to tear through a plastic bag, much less several layers of cloth. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, which had never been used. There they laid uh, Jesus, therefore because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was close by. So it was, here it mentions that it is not God's Passover, but the Jews' preparation day for their false feast. Okay, uh, I want to get through this, so maybe I won't read it all word for word. we got two more chapters, although we could do it tomorrow night, I suppose. Uh, why don't we just stop right there? Uh, it's uh, nearly ten after. We've been going about the right amount of time. I've been taking the overtime a little bit lately, so I'll give you a break, and we'll just stop there.